Welcome this morning to this children's media conference, Battle of Ideas discussion, Out of the Mouths of Babes, Free Expression, Children and 21st Century Media. I'm Shelley Dent and I'm your moderator for this discussion. I'm going to keep this intro short, very. We are going to kick off in a few minutes with a trailer for Biban Kidron's In Real Life. And that sums up many, many of the issues and concerns we want to touch on in this discussion. In a nutshell, the digital world, particularly social media, is now part of the fabric of our lives. And for young people and children, it's not just part of their lives, it's a fact of life. With ramifications, both good and bad, as we will see. And if you were at Dylan Collins' opening keynote, you will recall in relation to social media, he said of children, they both create and they destroy rather apocalyptically. So what we want to discuss and debate here today is what this all means for young people and children as they grow up, develop relationships, and learn to express themselves as part of a digital community. And importantly, what does it mean for you lot, content producers for children who want to interact and engage kids via social media and online communities? With a cracking lineup of speakers to help us explore and tackle this issue. I'm not going to do War and Peace and their biographies. For time's sake, I'm going to try and do it in a line, a sentence, but do look them up. They're a really interesting bunch. So, in order of speaking, we're going to kick off with David Bowden, give us a wave, editorial press and special projects manager at the Institute of Ideas, a bit of a man about town and media commentator on lifestyle and young people. Dave is going to kick us off with some reflections on the trailer and this, the issues at the heart of this debate. Next up, we'll have Claire Lilly, if you can give us a wave, Claire, who is Head of Child Safety Online at NSPCC. Claire's at the sharp end of many of the issues we'll see in the trailer and discuss here today, and those headlines, online bullying, children's access to adult content, sexting. So Claire is going to give us a bit of an insight into children and young people and the digital challenges they face today. Next, we have Rebecca Newton. Give us a wave. Chief Community and Safety Officer at Mind Candy. Rebecca is a pioneer in online communities and their management, and this is everything from the early days in the 1990s at AOL, through Habbo, and of course, Mushy Monsters, and perhaps onwards to Pop Jam, if we may, may touch on that issue. Rebecca is going to bring some of that pioneer knowledge and, I think, spirit to this discussion and take us through some of the lessons learned from her experiences managing young online communities. Simon Milner, give us a wife, Simon, is Policy Director, UK, Middle East and Africa for Facebook. Now, this, of course, means that Simon is personally responsible for everything that the 34 million UK users say and do on the platform. It's a hard job, Simon, but somebody's got to do it. In all seriousness, I have seen Simon several times on discussions such as this and tackling the issues at the heart of this debate, and I'm always impressed by the intelligence and frankness with which he tackles difficult issues and questions. No pressure, Simon, but let's see that today. Um, Catherine McAllister, give us a wave, Catherine, is Head of Safeguarding and Child Protection at BBC Children. She's been involved in developing gold standards for BBC policies for internet safety, and most recently this has been um, leading on the YouTube project. Catherine also has 10 years 
content production experience. So she's got a real 360 degree insight into these issues and she's going to give us a little bit of insight into the YouTube project and how the BBC have tackled that and handled that. Last but not least, right at the end, is Mark Goodchild. He's an independent producer and consultant and is also on the advisory committee of the Children's Media Foundation with a particular interest in digital and Mark is the exec producer for this session. Mark has a wealth of experience in content production for children from the BBC to, to Indy and he's, as I say, has got a particular interest in digital. He's going to round off the intros with some thoughts on the roles and responsibilities in this brave new world. So I'm going to go straight into the trailer with one click. The people who invented the internet had no idea that this would become the basis of society. We chased them out of the parks, we chased them out of the malls, we chased them out of our homes, and so they're falling back on these tools. Big tits, team, squirt. Text them a lot, tweet each other, and then we talk on Google Talk a lot. And have you had a boyfriend in real life? Um, no. I change my status to awake, and then I have my shower, come back, and then change my status to getting ready. Then I might change it to songs that I'm listening to. Probably change it like 10 times on the way. When you're young and you don't know any other way, you don't understand what some of these forces are, or you don't stop to ask. The grown-ups gave our children a communications medium, and then it turns out it's a world in which your history is archived by a private company on servers that belong to them for commercial purposes that belong to them. It's controlled. It's profit-driven, its value systems are hidden. When you adapt to something, you're changing something about yourself. I find now that it's so hard for me to actually feel the connection for a girl. Addiction. Continued use of a mood-altering substance or all behavior, despite adverse dependency consequences. If all these people were to get deleted, it wouldn't bother me. They're there for entertainment, so I can see the statuses and arguments and stuff that happen over the BB. It's not about the actual human beings behind it. No. I'm going to meet Devastus, the guy who set out my life by commenting on one of my videos. Okay, so pretty stock stuff. Dave, what's going on with our young people? Yeah, thank you, uh, Shirley, and thank you all for coming today. I mean, when I watched Bieben's film, it's quite interesting experience for me. I was very much somebody who was, uh, you know, I was sort of 14, about you know, 2000, 2001, very much the point when the internet was becoming very mainstream. It was becoming this um, uh, force that people were using more and more 
in their homes. And it was interesting because in the film, as you kind of see in the trailer, there's a kind of a great internet meetup that happens. All of these teenagers all go on the train to, I think, Hyde Park to see this um, icon of theirs, and they, they, they all come together. It reminds me that one of the first things I ever did as a, probably as a concrete result of the, being on the internet was also going to an internet meetup. But in my case, it was probably a little bit more, as I look back, a kind of what might be classed as, I guess, a red flag thing, of that I was meeting um, uh, people that I knew from an internet forum from some long-forgotten punk industrial metal band, I think that was in at the time. And it was in a pub, and these are all 20, 21-year-olds, and I was a 14-year-old, which in the early days, um, yeah, so before webcams were prevalent, much easier to pretend that you were older than you were. So I was the kind of predator acting on these 20 and 21-year-old students who were expecting me to be their age. And of course they behaved as, as you kind of assumed they would do, which is they thought it was hilarious that I was so young, and then tried to get me as drunk as possible. Um, and then sent me back home on my way to my parents, where I obviously went uh, to bed very, very early and avoided it. Um, but in many ways, it was an interesting experience because I was much more responsible in that context than I was when I was drinking much later, because I was surrounded by adults who I looked up to, but who weren't authority figures. I actually wanted to, I didn't want to just go up and get drunk and drink irresponsibly, because I wanted them to respect me, to fit in, to seem like I was part of that tantalising world. Obviously, when I drank later on in parks or parties with my friends, I drank like an irresponsible teenager and got myself into the kind of classic uh, problems and situations you bring into. And that's kind of one of the aspects that I want to bring to this discussion, because I think the problem is we tend to load in a lot of questions on uh, the role of young people and the internet. And that comes up in, in Bieben's film, it comes in a lot of these discussions, where we end up throwing every kind of anxiety we have about contemporary society and put it onto the question of young people. So there's the question of privacy in private corporations. There's kind of questions of loneliness and social atomization, our relationship and our changing relationship with communication, which of course aren't really specific to young people at all. It's not like we ha adult society has a clear and coherent idea of what is uh, a universal sexual morality in a certain sense, what is the appropriate way to behave in all instances. These are all informal aspects of life that we have to learn how to negotiate and teens have to struggle with. But I think what is specific to young people today, and I think that in real life the film tackles rather well, is the extent to which the internet represents virtually the last remaining space for young people where they can escape the oversight of their parents or other authority figures. The one thing that unites all of the kids in Bieben's film is the powerful way in which they cling to their virtual fantasy worlds as their main connection to navigating and exploring the boundaries of growing up. In fact, actually in the film, as, um, as you, which you don't see in the trailer, that almost sickeningly kind of glee club-like internet meetup gets broken up by the police who are acting under antisocial behaviour legislation because you're not supposed to have that many young people gathering together. And that's something that's echoed by uh, American writer Dana Boyd, who's written a very good book quite recently called It's Complicated. And one of the points that she makes is that actually, contrary to popular conception, kids are more closely monitored and can regulate it today than they ever were. There was none of that sort of... So one of the points she makes is that, you know, in, the, in previous generations, there was much more of a sort of sense of sneaking out, that it kind of wasn't sanctioned, but, you know, you'd put your kids to, to bed and you'd come back a couple of hours later, and then actually, if they snuck out in between, as long as they were back at a certain time then that was kind of considered okay. There was, you afforded them a little bit of room where you didn't tell them they could go off and do whatever they wanted, 
but you afforded them that space for experimentation. And I think that that's a danger, something that we get lost in this discussion when we talk about trying to um, allow teens to, to grow up. It becomes rather polarised, where growing up becomes just simply about how we protect them from everything in the adult world. Obviously, if we want to prepare our, our kids, and, and obviously talking particularly about teenagers here in this sense, rather than slightly younger ones, um, then you know, we actually want to give them a little bit of a, a freedom to, to, to think for themselves, to behave more like adults with each other, rather than just give them the space where they'll inevitably end up being uh, uh, you know, children in cyberspace and make some of those mistakes. So I, d I just want to sort of counsel a little bit about the rush of regulation and oversight and assume that the only answer here is to give more and more adult oversight to young people online. Because I think that we've seen the dangers of that happen in public space, where they have been pushed and shoved out of it, and they just now exist solely in cyberspace. And I think that will just push people further and further away, when in reality we want to move them a little bit more into, into the public realm rather than just living entirely virtually. That's my opening thoughts, but I'll return to other ones later. Thanks, Dave. Claire, as it says in the film, we've driven them out of the mouths, we've driven them out of our homes, and Dave's point about the last remaining space. What does this all mean for young people and the NSP, and what have you seen at NSPCC? Yeah. Over to you, Claire. Thank you. <coughs> um, so, obviously, the... For young people in particular, the, the internet offers huge benefits, you know, to learn, to explore, to explore their, you know, for teenagers to explore their sexuality, to create, to meet people from all around the world, you know, learn how to communicate with different people. You know, the opportunities are fabulous for them to develop skills and so on. They, they use it to find information about subjects which they are too embarrassed to talk to their parents or, or their teachers about, you know, their sexuality, sex and relationships and so on. All of that is wonderful. And we have seen that at Childline. So last year at Childline, for the first time, we saw more children contacting us online than we did um, over the telephone. And they're talking to us online about more serious things. So whereas on the phone, they'll, they'll I mean, not necessarily, more serious is the wrong word, but different sort, sort of things. So on the phone, they're talking to us about family relationships. On the internet, you know, virtually all the contacts we get about self-harm, depression and suicide come through online channels. So the internet is facilitating those young people who are extremely vulnerable and most at risk to reach out and get help. And that is, you know, wonderful. And yet, young people are being exposed to risks online that we wouldn't dream of exposing them to um, on, via television or via other platforms. Um, they're being exposed to risks in terms of their own and other people's behaviour, and they're being exposed to risks in terms of the content that they're seeing. And, you know, experimentation that Div's talked about, it can go too far. And at Childline, we see the results of that, you know, far too often. So last year at Childline, we saw a 65% increase in calls from children who were tr calling about um, things that they'd experienced online. And when children call Childline, they're generally at a point of crisis to do, to do that. Uh, an 87% increase in calls about cyberbullying. Um, so, so the volume of risk seems to be from their peers rather than from sexual predators, which, you know, there is, there is this, this fear that be because of the overhype of sexual predators in the offline world, they've been driven onto the online world. But, the, you know, those sexual predators exist in both spaces. So, so, you know, where are we driving to now? 
Um, you know, we've seen a lot of children as young as seven contacting us about having been upset by watching pornography, by being um, pressurised teenagers, being pressurised into behaving in certain ways because their, their, their boyfriends have watched pornography and there's an expectation. Um, we've even seen children contacting us because they have become um, addicted to seeing child abuse images, which they've come across online, and they can't stop looking at those images when they've stumbled on them. So that we're talking about really serious issues that they're contacting us about. And then you've got the whole issue of sexting, um, where children are taking images of themselves and not understanding where that image can end up. So the Internet Watch Foundation did a, a study of 13,000 uh, sexual images which were self-generated by teenagers and they found that 88% of those had been harvested from their original location and moved somewhere else onto um, websites used by sex offenders. So children are using, losing control of their information and not, not understanding the, uh, kind of the way their information is being played out. Um, and of course we also see adults, particularly parents, phoning our um, adult helpline for information and support about when things go wrong in, in relation to cyberbullying, when they can't get resolution through this social media platform, and um, in relation to uh, grooming as well. And that's why we're, try we're trying to launch a, a, a specific parent helpline to help them deal with those issues. Um, but I guess there's, there's a few issues for me in relation to the um, internet that need to be really resolved if we're going to protect young people adequately. The first is anonymity, which can be both a, a great thing for children to use, but also can, expose, can you know, facilitate exposure to risk. Uh, the second thing is the international dimension of it, when platforms are based abroad and there's very little ability to influence their behaviour in relation to young people. The third thing is the lack of age and identity verification. Uh, that's a very challenging you know, issue, but it's a, it's a real one. And the fourth one is the lack of um, transparency, which we see in terms of the behaviour of some social media platforms. The most responsible platforms are doing a lot to protect children, um, you know, re really taking this seriously, but there are you know, le less responsible platforms. For example, um, I'll give you an example, mylaw.com, which is a teen dating site, which is aimed at 13 to 25-year-olds. So it's actively enabling adults to meet uh, with teenagers as young as 13 in a very sexualized environment. Um, so I think what we hear to what, what we hear very often is that this is all about education of young people and parents, and you know, t telling them how to how to behave. Yes, that is a part. To of it, but we also strongly feel that industry has a role to play in this. Thank you. That's a great segue for Rebecca. Industry has a role to play. Rebecca. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about this, and um, I spent so many years, uh, or a percentage of so many years, on the sort of dark side of the kids and the internet, and ran to Mind Candy seven years ago because everything was pink and sparkly. and. Um, Everybody's happy and lives in a beautiful world in Mind Candy, and um, and after having been at Disney in the early years, I really loved this age group that we work with. And so you do have to find a balance in responsibility. As first of all, we have to freely admit we're in a business, and so we're as any business we're responsible for our customers when they're with us, um, and then as any human, I'm responsible for my child, myself, my own behavior, and teaching my children how to behave online and offline. So there's only, as far as I'm concerned, 
so much that industry can do, or that I should say, it's not a glass half empty, but it's industry is responsible, but so are parents, and so are children, and so are, it's, it takes a village, basically. Um, we have sophisticated software at Mind Candy, and, uh, and at the time, when I was at Havo, we had the most sophisticated software commercially. Well, it wasn't even commercially available. We built it, it was proprietary. But the most sophisticated software that I'd seen for what we were dealing with um, at Havo. And now we have even more sophisticated software, and we've been working with some people for about a year uh, about um, trying to find a way to let kids express themselves and not put them in this box. Because we know that if we say, here's a list of the 10 words that you can say online, now go have a good time, they're just not going to go, and they're going to go to some place where and say that they're 17 or 58 or whatever that they say and and not be as protected i'm not going to say that they're not protected i am not i don't have a problem with kids being on facebook at all um, my grandson is one and his parents and siblings put pictures of him up there all the time and i would and here i am over here and i missed his birthday party i would have been very upset to not be able to share that moment with them in almost real time. So I really appreciate social networking for families, for kids, for people of all ages. Um, so at Mind Candy, we've been working towards this for a long time. And it, it came in, in the early days, seven years ago, when we came out with Moshi Monsters, there was, I would say, probably eight to 10 was our median age, and mostly 70% girls, 60 maybe 68% girls and the rest boys. And we also had a Twitter-like environment and, and posts were only public. Now there were ways that you could get around not having a public post by deleting it, but we could see everything. And we build our tools so even though I might delete something that I say you are a wanker and delete it, the, we can still see that and our software could see that so we could action it. So we obviously weren't making that um, known, although honestly, I'm all about letting the families and the kids and the parents know that, hey, we're watching everything, everything. Why try to hide that? I don't want to entrap anybody. I'd rather that they go someplace else and behave like that. And we also set that tone early on with Mind Candy. Oh, I've got like 20 seconds. Okay, so, well, I just want to talk about the happy stuff, and that is Pop Jam, and I'm not going to usurp the big announcement that's today, but we have a really great social networking creative community app that's coming out, and we have spent a long time working towards how to balance this with our moderation team, with our content team, with the creative team, the tech team, and uh, I feel very confident about it, and I feel very confident about the net being a great, great place for 98% of the people who are doing great stuff on the net and not wanting to focus on the 1% who aren't. Thank you. Thank you. Simon, it takes a village. Your village is pretty darn big. It is. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, I hope we all agree that the internet is the best media tool ever invented for free expression. However, there is an issue about under 13-year-olds on, on the internet, and perhaps we could come back to that in the discussion as to why it doesn't work as well for that age group as it does for other age groups. However, the internet is not the basis for society. 
Human relationships are the basis for society, and that's true uh, in terms of how Facebook works as well. That's at the very heart of Facebook. Sometimes relationships go wrong, and, and sometimes people feel unsafe, and indeed are unsafe, and sometimes people get harmed in society, and that's also true on Facebook. And we work really hard to try and ensure that either A, doesn't happen, or B, that if it does happen, that we're able to help that person uh, and those around them uh, as quickly as we can, as effectively as we can. But rather than dwell on those, if you like, I wouldn't say negative, but just the, the bad experiences that can happen online, I want to talk about three examples of how young people that we are working with in Facebook are making the best of the Internet, and indeed are making the Internet. And that's through three events that have happened in this country in the last two weeks. So a fortnight ago, I was at the Festival of Education. Some of you may know of it. It takes place at Wellington College every year. About 3,000 educators and young people come together to talk about the future of education. Facebook sponsors it. And we held a whole day of teachers talking about how they're using Facebook in the classroom for learning and for connecting their school community. And to hear about how reluctant learners were doing homework by accident because they were using Facebook to hear about how Facebook helps to break down cliques in the classroom, and, not, uh, and to hear that from the mouths of young people. Actually, this is the only event I've been to recently around safety in children, where there are no children here. Uh, these were young people talking about that, talking about their experience. A couple of days later, I went to the Apps for Good Awards. Apps for Good work in now hundreds of schools around the UK to, to help young people use their enthusiasm for the internet and for social media and for apps to learn about how that industry works and to build apps themselves. And we were delighted to be able to present our first Facebook award to a young man who's built an app with incredibly powerful uh, social uses. Uh, and young people are, are doing this all the time. Uh, and they are the ones from whom the, the new Facebook will come. It will come from young people. And then finally, just this week uh, in our, our Facebook's office in London, we held um, a showcase for the Diana Award Anti-Bullying Ambassadors. And we had young people from schools around the UK, including from here, come and talk about how they are combating bullying, both in school and online. Uh, and how they, as young people, many of them have been bullied before, are um, st stepping up, realizing that actually diversity is a good thing, and we shouldn't be criticizing somebody because they're too tall, they're too fat, they're too gay, they're too black. Uh, and to hear those young people tell their stories, all of which you can find on YouTube, was incredibly inspiring. And there was no way before things like Facebook and social media that those stories would be heard. So uh, to me, those are just three examples of how the internet uh, is being used to, for, as a powerful place for free, free expression by young people in incredibly positive ways. And I'm really proud, as Facebook, that we were able to support all three of those events in the last month in the UK. Thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. Catherine great positives there from Facebook, the experience with YouTube and the BBC. Uh, so, yeah, the experience with BBC and YouTube, three years ago, the BBC, uh, BBC Children's wouldn't have um, uh, considered putting a CBBC uh, channel on, on YouTube. Um, it just wasn't feasible for, for a number of reasons. There were a number of reasons for that. But the research started to show that more and more children that were spending the time there, and, and research suggested as well that a lot of the children 
that were spending the time there were not spending the time with C, uh, on CBBC. So it, so it then became really important that we stepped out to, to that space and, and meet potential new audiences there and introduce them to our content. But I, as Simon said, I don't think that there is any of, it, any of the stakeholders now would say that um, uh, the internet is anything but a, uh, but a good thing for, for young people. And it is fraught with issues for teens and the, the film looks at some of those um, in detail. There's a, there's a world of risk there, but there is that world of opportunity. There's access to ideas and information. There's the support that Claire talked about. Um, something that's really interesting, that when you talk to children who say that they've been bullied online, one of their most important sources of support is also online. So to say to a child, just switch it off, just turn it off is is absolutely unhelpful as a way to um, to tackle that behaviour. We can't build walled gardens for anything but the youngest, which we, we we might do on CBBS, and we all lose out if children aren't active, full, active, confident partners in in digital in digital spaces. They've helped to shape it, and to and to shut them out would be wrong, and we would uh, we'd absolutely all. Uh, miss out. There are issues like age verification and um, anonymity that um, Claire mentioned that we need to address, but I think we really need to get to a point where there's a consensus amongst stakeholders on the best ways to, to tackle these issues, and that consensus needs to include what children themselves, young people themselves, think are the best ways to tackle it. And as, as Simon said, to, to uh, listen to children, talking about what they want, talking about um, what they... Uh, feel they need and allow them to take control and allow them to take responsibility as well. Thank you, Catherine. <coughs> Mark, we've heard the negatives, we've heard the positives. Roles and responsibilities. Yeah, wow. Um, so you've heard a lot of views. Um, and I suppose the one view you haven't, you haven't heard at the table, and you're not going to hear it from me either, is that the internet is inherently evil. Um, <laughs> But I think, you know, what, what you do, it, as you look at what the internet is doing for young people and, or, or the, the whole ability to be online on different media, whether it's mobile through to uh, online gaming, etc., um, I think there are three different views of the world when it comes to young people. And one is the total libertarian view, and I, I applaud Simon, because Simon's brilliant at coming to these panels. I, I get a slightly different vibe from Facebook uh, West Coast every now and again when Mark Zuckerberg talks because you do think, you know, he is the libertarian. Actually, they're just a distribution platform. It's up to what you do with it. Um, so I do think there's a bit of conflict there with some, some of the, the big players. But at least there's a philosophy to be pushed back on. Um, personally, I'll take these in turn. So the libertarian view is actually we've built this thing. It's up to parents. It's up to real-world situations to moderate and, and educate and tell kids how to, 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 to uh, um, navigate this world. There's the middle ground, which is we built these amazing tools. The kids are there already. The genie's out of the bottle, bottle, and that's where we need to go if we're going to talk to them in a meaningful way, which is what I propose, I think, most of the broadcasters and the big media uh, operators in the kids' space are doing right now. It's a bit of a shit. We've woken up a bit too late to this. We, we need to be there. Um, and I think we could try harder in that space. And then the third view is, actually, we've, the last five years, the pace of technology has gone so fast, we haven't had any chance to, to take a pause and think, are these tools designed in the way we want? Not just for children. I'd actually say for ourselves as well. And You get as much debate about what adults want. 
But to follow Simon's point, you know, we have to work hard to reduce those risks. I believe we have to work even harder to reduce the risk for kids. And I think as the industry, the children's media conference, it's incumbent on us, from broadcasters to producers to digital startups like myself, to companies like Mindcandy, actually to start saying we can do better. Um, and the YouTube one is, I think, the biggest dilemma at the moment. Uh, on, uh, on the keynote, uh, Dylan was talking about you know, how YouTube, that graph which just said YouTube rise and rise and rise. And yet YouTube are the most silent uh, company in this discussion. They're not here. You know, I've been pressing their press office for a blog I'm writing about, can you just clarify what are the rules for under 13s? Um, and they have an ambiguous place. Um, and the reason I have a problem with the way YouTube is working is because it's such a powerful engine. We know kids are there, and I think that there are two types of audiences. There are kids, as they grow up, go from being innocent, and then they, you know, when we get to the team, team boys particularly, we push those boundaries and we try to find stuff. And I actually think that's okay. I think Bieben's film over-accentuates that. I think she, there's a bit of scaremongering in that. But boys particularly will be boys, and at some time they will find porn. Um, my biggest concern about the might of, of a mass distribution channel is for the innocent children who trip over this stuff inadvertently. And so the reason why I think as, as, uh, as an industry we need to put pressure on the likes of YouTube, and you know, two or three years ago we were putting the same pressure on the likes of Facebook to step up, um, is that you can do so much by running your own channels. You can turn off uh, recommendations, you can turn off syndication, you can turn off ads, but you can't turn off search. The search bar at the top of any YouTube channel, you can't turn it off. And I've been onto all the children's channels um, in the last uh, few months, just doing random searches for things which you would expect in their domain, like a kids' program, and finding quite shocking stuff. And that's all down to the algorithms. And I suppose my main concern is when you've got the might of technology that we have, those algorithms can be put to better use because they're very good at knowing what they want to sell to us. But let's start using those algorithms to protect children too. Thank you. Um, thank you very much to the panel for some really interesting, provocative introductions. I've got a few questions before I come out to you guys in the floor. And please do ask robust, frank questions. I'm sure you won't be shy. One thing I just want to... That there's three questions I really want to ask and get and generally to the panel. I was really interested, Mark, in this innocent... Songs of Innocence and Experience. And sometimes it seems in this discussion you go from innocent children to really experienced children very quickly. But they're growing up. And I'm interested, particularly where we come from, Rebecca, where you're now looking at 7 to 12, I believe, is for Pop Jam. Then they go into the world of Facebook. And if we can just pretend in this alternative world where there's no copper, that sometimes a child who is below 13 might actually lie about their age and be on <coughs> Facebook. What is the roles and responsibilities of parents, of the content industry, of the platforms, in helping children to negate to navigate that innocence and experience moment. 
anybody feel free before I start picking on someone? Well, I'm happy to kick off. I mean, as I mentioned at the start, I do think there is an issue. I don't, does everybody know what copper is? I should have mentioned. Yeah? So, well, copper is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. It's a US piece of legislation designed to keep kids safe by saying you can only collect uh, data for somebody under 13 if you have expressed parental permission. Incredibly hard to do that, and that's one of the reasons, the reason, why Facebook and most other services say you have to be 13 to join. Um, and that, I think, does create a, a bit of a cliff edge problem um, at, at that age. But it, and it also creates this issue of uh, there being people who are underage on Facebook, and their first experience of using a social media app is to lie about their age, which is uh, really absolutely not something uh, to be welcomed. It, the, the, the evidence shows consistently that in most of these situations, um, the parents of those children have not only know about the fact they're using Facebook, but have helped them join. It could be as a result of peer pressure uh, and pester power, um, but nonetheless, that's something that they are uh, decided that they are comfortable with. Um, I think that in that context, it's incredibly hard for us as Facebook to identify those underage accounts and deal with them. We have special systems for people to report things to us, for teachers, etc., to do that. Uh, but I do think the, the cliff edge of copper um, is, is a barrier for free expression. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you do about it, though. And it's an arbitrary... You know, the world has fallen into line around 13 because of copper. And Europe will soon. Yeah. But it's not... You know, it, it does seem to match child development, but some children mature much much more quickly and some will be a lot longer. Mm. And in the same way, we would protect, um, you know, want to protect uh, kids who, you know, who are maturing <coughs> much later in life. You, the, an age gate doesn't solve all those problems. And that's why I think I'd say that, you know, we've got to get beyond just saying, I've got a policy, it says we're over 13, therefore we're all right. What we're about is creating spaces which are designed with kids in mind and I think then it comes to a it's, it's easy to say oh but our space isn't designed with kids in mind but then and what copper is interesting about is it says you are responsible whether if you are creating an environment where lots of kids come mm -hmm. you have to stand up and be counted and that's you know we wouldn't be having this debate about LinkedIn because actually no children will be wanting to go to LinkedIn <laughs> So, but it's where, and that's where we come in as media uh, creators, where our content goes attracts children. And therefore, whether it's Facebook, whether it's YouTube, um, you know, whether it's Amazon, where content is appropriate to the kids, we've got to make sure the platforms are appropriate to kids. Yeah, but, but I, I think, I mean, well, for me, I think it's interesting. It's always important to remember that it's not the job of children's media or industry to set those standards, I think, within society. That's the question. Ultimately, it's the parents who are the um, arbiters who decide what is appropriate for their, no, for their children. The, the, the to, distributors to do have an obligation. Okay. No, so, no, but I mean, but it should be responding to what, you know, ultimately what parents think is <coughs> acceptable for their kids to be doing. I mean, otherwise, the ultimate fear is surely the parents will just stop them accessing the... Uh, the media, using the media, buying the media in that sense. So it's not, there's a limited role there, but it surely is responding to the desires of users. I disagree. Than I, think, I think we have a social contract is. with our media distributors. I'll come back to you. Sorry, Mark, can you just say that again? I think we have a social contract with our media distributors. As parents, when children go to children's channels like CBBC or CBBC, parents know what they're letting them loose on. Mm -hmm. 
So, and you know you can leave your children there and they don't, you don't have to watch them. Just check that they're not watching some BBC Three content sort of floating. Mm. Likewise, Nickelodeon, Disney. And I think we, we've built up a very good model of the world where we understand those distribution mechanisms. What's happening now is we're having distribution platforms which are much broader shops, mm -hmm. much more porous, much more leaky, and parents are sort of half making that contract. And I think, you know, we've been doing a bit of uh, sort of grassroots at the, at the school gates with, um, for, for a blog piece we've been writing. And most of the parents are worried that at some point or other their kids have tripped over stuff that they wouldn't have approved if they'd been sitting next to them. Well, yeah, I no, sure, no, no, so I, I just mean it's about meeting the trust of parents. I agree with you on that point, that's in terms of... But obviously it's about responding to the, yeah. the social mores and what's acceptable amongst parents first and making sure you meet those obligations. And I, don't, I think you're right, it's not our responsibility to set those standards, <clears throat> but where we go, because we are trusted brands, parents do think we, we're condoning it. Yeah, there's an implied endorsement when a, when a, a children's broadcaster brand is in those spaces. Can I just come in? So, I just well, want to say, like, parents are, you know, there is evidence that some parents are helping their children to sign up to these sites, but it's of, it is often the case that they don't know whether, whether the site is appropriate or not. They don't know the age. They might know the age for Facebook, but they, they maybe don't know it yeah. for Tumblr and all the rest yeah. of them. And I think the, th the thing about copy is, it, you know, in the UK context, Children make the transition onto these platforms when they move to secondary school. Yeah. They want to be part of the social life of the, yeah. the environment that they're in, and that is completely yeah. understandable. And, you know, to be honest, they open themselves up to risks like bullying, you know, both cyber and, you know, old style, if, if they're not on those. Um, so I think parents are caught in a really difficult trap here where, you know, they're, so it's not enough to say, um, you know, these platforms set the, stand, set the standards and parents have to adhere to them and yes. if they don't, it, the, the burden is on them. This, the platforms have to enforce the standards as well and too often we see platforms who just, you know, they, they write these terms and conditions and they do absolutely nothing to enforce them and it is, it is exposing children to content which is completely unsuitable for their age and which should be removed by moderators. I just want to bring in Rebecca at this point because I'm interested in children moving on to secondary school, do you think, not to put you on the spot, but I am, <laughs> do you think that a platform such as Moshi or now PopJam has any responsibility in loco parentis, and I'm not sure I actually want a business to be in loco parentis, but we'll see, has it got any responsibility in helping them graduate to Facebook, for example? But what, how does that work as they grow up in a particular site and then move off into the wider digital world? I don't think I'd say that, um, that we have a responsibility. I think that's too strong yeah. of, you know, okay, we're going to get you ready for the, I mean, we're not a Montessori school. We're not a preschool. <laughs> we're not, a, you know. So, uh, and we don't, we don't advertise ourselves as that or even want to be that. But I think, I mean, this is a fine line about moderation and public and our policies and is, is what do we want to do? What is the point of our content? What is our, you know, what is our, what, what do we want to, do we want to enrich their lives? Do we want it to be everything, educational, socially responsible? Some of that's subjective. So much of that is subjective. Um, I think we have a responsibility to know our age group is 7 to 12 and to take every precaution 
and make sure that our moderators, content providers, et cetera, and tool, you know, the, the tech guys, everybody uh, is, is aware of what this, that age group that we're looking to entertain, because we're an entertainment company yeah. and not an educational company, um, what it is that we want to do. You know, what do we want to, do we want to change their lives? Do we want to be um, Facebook, but really, uh, because it is a lot about human behavior, but for us it's the fun part, right? It's not that we don't want to tackle social issues like uh, I'm a cutter and things like that. No, I don't, I'm not saying Facebook does either, but Facebook has changed the world. We want to change the world for young people in a creative way and have a place for kids to globally express themselves and learn and share. So I don't know how to really say that, yes, we're responsible for them being the next generation of responsible kids. I think it's tweens. fine to say you're not responsible. But okay. I, Simon, you wanted to come yeah, in? Yeah, I think one thing that um, we may want to focus on is one of the things that's very different about Facebook compared with most traditional media channels is it's global. And it is truly global. So we have a policy on Facebook that we don't allow nudity or pornography. And we do that because we have under 18s on the site. But it doesn't mean if you're 47 as I am that you can see pornography or nudity on Facebook. I can't. And that's because of the nature of our community. But in Denmark, we get heavily criticized because we don't allow nudity on the platform. And people think that nudity is part of being able to be nude and to be displaying those pictures is part of free expression in that society. So my colleague who looks after policy in the, in the Nordics has had to appear before a parliamentary committee criticizing Facebook for not allowing nudity. So one of the interesting issues for us is as, um, as, we, as we, we, we try and both determine our policies and enforce them and work with partners around the world is coping with very different degrees about when childhood ends, views about when childhood ends, and also what's, what, what's okay for people to see. We, ha we set global standards, but it doesn't mean that we, we get criticism from both sides in doing so. This leads me into the question I want to put, again, generally to the panel, but particularly to Dave and Claire, which is about a word I haven't heard that much at the conference, which is about judgment. Because I think my judgment as an adult is superior sometimes to children, often to children, because I'm an adult and I have some experience in the world. And this point about experimentation that you both touched on, Dave, not enough, you know, young people need to experiment, the risks of experimentation. Where is that line of judgment drawn? Where should we be drawing it as parents, as content producers, as moderators? How much experimentation should we allow? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, it's difficult. I mean, I use those examples exactly because it illustrates there's not you know, a clear standard for what is you know, kind of appropriate for experimentation. There's a number of things that you do in, in, in adulthood and in life that you don't quite know are good for you that may not be good for you, and you have to learn to navigate these things uh, for yourself. So ultimately, it has to be up to individual parents of what they're happy for their children to see. That may, you know, that can be quite a broad church. That means they, they could be very, very liberal. They could also be quite moralistic. You know, you can be a, 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 a Christian parent with very strong views on sexuality who is essentially, you know, you can't read anything about homosexuality under my roof. I think what tends to get forgotten about these discussions is that for all of the parental pressures, they are the ones who control the internet for most young people. They do not have the power really to 
particularly under the roof. It's different in loco parentis, but on the whole of their own roofs, they have the responsibility to negotiate that. And they have to give up certain decisions. How much do they want to look over their child's soldier, shoulder? How many arguments are they going to have about denying kids that social world? But it has to be about giving themselves a little bit of a trust to, to allow that freedom, but to set boundaries as well. Actually, you can't go on the internet after this time. I will monitor your search history. I will look over your shoulder. You can't go out and meet that person, those kind of boundaries. I think parents should be more willing to try and set those as well. Claire? Um, well, I think, you know, parents have got to be able to use their own judgment about how they bring up their children, because it's not just the age of the child that's important, it's the stage of development of the child. And children differ, you know, greatly in, in terms of their developmental stage. But I think to make a, to make a good judgment call, parents need to have the information uh, that they need in order to make that. And I think one of the problems that we've got with a lot of these platforms is the lack of transparency about, you know, things like how many reports of bullying do they get? How do they deal with those reports? In what time frame do they get them? What, where, was the complainant adequately, you know, was it resolved to their satisfaction? So they, they need information about all these things in order to make good judgment. But I also want to make a plea for you know, as Catherine said, listening to young people and their judgment, and particularly as they get older, you know, we, we're about to release some um, data on Monday about a, a, a survey of dating apps, teen dating apps and sites that we've done. And overwhelmingly, young people, you know, recognise that these platforms, that they're inherently risky. So we, we need to listen to what they've got to say as well. We, I think probably parent, parental judgment needs to be, particularly as they get a bit older, needs to link in with young I, people. I, think well. that I would agree with Dave is it's, it's becoming very binary. It's sort of like, yeah, parents in control, mm -hmm. so what can you do about it? They need to be educated, we all agree. And then the, the choices at the moment, turn it on or turn it off. You're allowed to, you're allowed your face, you're, you're allowed your screen time on YouTube or, you know, suggesting that actually the solution is, well, if you want to be a responsible parent, you need to be checking your search histories regularly. That's just, it's just not the world, it's not a, it's not a viable solution. And so th that's where I think, you know, the technology is advancing so fast, we can do so much more clever stuff if people wanted to put some money and effort behind it. The parents could, should have, yes, the education, make their own decisions, but have the tools to shape the world, the internet that they would like their kids to go onto. And at the moment, it's being defined by completely other people who are not defining it around children. So, you know, you have the platforms that, you know, I've got an eight-year-old daughter. I would never let her on. I struggle with YouTube every day with her because I don't, you know, she does her homework and we'll choose it, uh, choose search stuff. She wouldn't go on Facebook, but that's a parental decision. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to tell her she can't go on YouTube at all. She would be ostracized at school. Mm -hmm. It's there. So the platforms that I want her to use as a, as a kid, we need to be making sure that they've got more tools thinking about the younger age range and if if facebook is saying we're not for under 13s i'll switch it off i think facebook wants to come in at this yeah point. so uh, i mean let's bring some facts to bear in this conversation There's lots of people who talk about their own personal experience and parents do this and parents do that actually look at the ofcom research martina who did that research is in the audience today fantastically detailed research about how parents uh, work with their kids to manage their online experience. And what it shows is it's well over 80% of parents have use at least one technique, 
one, one way in which they manage their children's online experience. Some of them use multiple, but it's all there. The data's there. We know about, about this, uh, and it's incredibly powerful. So let's actually look at the evidence on what's going on here. Parents actually, most parents in this country are making judgments and are helping their kids to manage this. But also, the idea that we need to put some money behind it, and who's put, that's also nonsense. So just, uh, just last month, um, the four main ISPs in the UK launched an initiative called Internet Matters, directed wholly at parents. They're going to be spending £25 million a year in marketing that to parents in the UK. Most parents in the UK are in homes which have broadband, served by these four main ISPs. They're going to be getting all this really wonderful information that the NSPCC and other safety organisations provided advice on. So, Yet again, we get this notion of oh, nothing's happening, and this is, it's not. Lots and lots of really good things are happening in the UK. The UK leads the world when it comes to online safety, and we should be proud of that fact, and let's base our discussion on evidence, not supposition and personal anecdote. But, but Simon, do you think we got the tools are perfect? Of course not. The, okay. that's, that's the world of, of, of the internet. We're always developing new things. And actually, so PopJam's just come out today. I've had a quick play with it. I'll continue to play with it. And there'll be some new features in that that other people will say, I could do better than that. And that's the, the world we're in. People are constantly innovating and making new stuff. We radically changed the way that you can re use uh, reporting on Facebook within the last six months. Uh, with incredible consequences for helping young people and everybody else in place resolve a problem if they come across it. So we're constantly looking to innovate in this space. So of course it's not perfect, but equally it's not terrible. I'm going to Mark and then Dave, and then I'm going to come out to the audience. So, uh, and does anybody else want to get a word in before we go out? And then Claire. So, Mark, <coughs> Dave, Claire. So I think I think I applaud what Simon's saying because I think it is about the tools. It's about advancing the tools. The worry is that making tools for kids to have a better internet isn't very economically viable. And that's one of the things we haven't really talked about. And that's where, you know, because it doesn't turn into revenue streams for most people. I mean, I talked to uh, Michael last night about moshing money. I, don't, I can't work out the, the revenue model that you're going to have. It would be good to see it. So that's where... As a, an industry and as a society, we, the people who are creating stuff to go on these platforms and make money out of them, I think there is a bit of a, when do we, are you going to put a bit of money back into making them better? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there has to be, I think a lot of these things are more obligations after me, and I think that's met because parents will end up denying the use of the technology to these things, ultimately. And I still think there's, you know, every time I speak at a, a discussion about young people, there's always that lamentation that they've been pushed out of the parks and the malls. Um, nobody ever used to say that we needed to design parks and malls based around the ability to cut down on bullying or to try and regulate better uh, uh, children's, you know, how they navigate their dating. You actually can exist in a sexually charged environment with 13 to 25 year olds in a park, in a public space. As parents, you always have to make choices about how you let your child engage with that. You don't necessarily let your, your eight year old out all day without any monitoring, but you might start to give a little bit of ground to older teenagers, and you try and equip them with the, the critical skills to engage with that. And I think that's part of the more important thing. This is not something, a question that's going to be solved just by talking about the regulation and technicalities online. It's a question about us in broader society, about the standards we set as parents, as members of a community. Claire? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't agree that we, you know, when children were being pushed out of parks, we didn't 
you know, what we did was say, well, well they, instead they need safe spaces to play, they need youth clubs and so on. And it's about creating safe spaces on the internet and, and making those as safe as possible. And the fact that someone on the panel, you know, on Pop Jam has been able to, you know, as, as a 47-year-old as a man, has been able to log on to that and is on that, like, I'm, uh, you know... As an 8-year-old. As an 8-year-old. You know, it does risk, <laughs> it does raise concerns. I'm sure, you know, with Moshi's track record, there will be all sorts of things built in and, you know, safeguards, but, it, it, you know, that is a, a concern straight away. And I also think that, you know, we need to start building this in to the startups and to the, you know, the Facebook or the Instagram or whatever of tomorrow. We need to get startups and SMEs thinking about how to think about protecting children from their outset, because it's much harder for them when you have to bolt it on at a later date. Rebecca, um, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I'll just take a second to, to uh, address the the comment about a 47-year-old person coming into Pop Jam or Moshi. We actually encourage adults, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people of all ages to come to Moshi, and we'll do the same with Pop Jam, um, because parent, we find, and we found this with Moshi, that families really loved sharing that experience with their kids. And we know with Pop Jam, it's going to be even greater. It's no different than people on my 34-year-old daughter sharing stuff with me on Facebook about my grandchildren. Or, uh, I mean, this, this is not a Facebook platform, just to be clear. But it's a creative platform. But we don't have problems with adults being on, on Pop Jam. And we didn't in Moshi. And we would rather be, have kids in a place where there are adults and like a public park, like any place that you go in the world where there are people of all ages, uh, sh you know, watching after each other. And we know that we have an amazing team with 10 to 20 years experience and, and, um, and amazing tools. We spend a lot of money on tools, by the way. So I just want to say that there's not, it's not like, oh, we, we can't afford it. And there's no money in the tools. There is, there, for us, it's, it's important to have great tools so we can make a great product. Okay, I'm going to go out to the audience now. I can see some hands already. It takes a village, but it's a commercial village. It's a social village. It's where children are growing up and there are adults and all sorts of things going on. I'll take a cluster of questions and then we can come back. Okay, um, I'm a lecturer at university and our students um, tend to come to us with a, a real naivety about the use of social media. They write things there that are damaging to their reputation if they wanted to get employment later. If they're coming to us at, say, 19 to 21 with an inability to, to understand how to use it um, in a way that isn't harmful to them, then there's something going wrong prior to that in the education of the children using social media. And although there's 80% of parents apparently in a study that are, are helping their, their children to use it in a responsible way, I find that a lot of parents um, lack understanding of digital media. They don't actually know how to use it properly. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's just an observation that, you know, here, yeah, of course, we all know how to use it because we're in media, but what about people that don't use the internet who have kids? So I think, therefore, that the, um, the platforms that um, create content for kids do have a responsibility to, to create tools to protect them. And do say, say who you are if you want to. You Hello, to. I'm a man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, uh, my name's Simon, and I was wondering whether the panel see um, social media as a, as, as a subject to be taught in schools at some point, because it seems to be a tipping point uh, this kind of adolescent tipping point and whether it would be a good timing maybe to 
We're very good with kind of younger kids that protect them about the internet. We go, now the internet, you must be very, very careful. And then you get to a certain bit and we kind of, I don't know, there's this tipping point and none of us seem to have an answer for it. And, uh, and I just wanted to know what the panel thought about social media as a, as a subject to be taught because education seems to be very important. Do you mean ethics of social media or how to as, use as, it? As a broader subject, yeah. So you would teach the, the, the ethics of it, how, how it works what an algorithm really is, you know, uh, 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 and all these things, it, it's, it's a, it could be a very good, uh, it seems, seems, you know, quite obvious, possibly in a few years. It's an interesting day. point. I've got, if we can pass the mic there. Hello, I'm Gemma. Um, so we've talked a lot about how parents need to protect their children, but actually these last two comments have really raised the issue of actually educating kids because they have their own judgment that they can use. And recently we've seen... Um, on Facebook, obviously, there's been kids that have been whitewalling and kind of removing their activity on Facebook. So they are aware of their social presence. And I don't think, um, you know, Snapchat would exist if kids weren't aware of the importance of hiding what they're doing. So I think it would be good to get some opinions about that. Hi, uh, Chris Diamond. Um, so I'm happy that um, all of you guys are incentivized to create safe spaces or safer spaces or the safer spaces you can for kids you're all creating nice, brightly lit areas. You don't want the pub negative publicity. You've got the resources to do it. But you're not going to solve the problem that the NSPCC have got because um, kids don't want to hang out in brightly lit, monitored spaces all the time. They want to go into dark spaces. And um, there's, there's no way that um, you can legislate globally to prevent those dark spaces from providing and aggregating especially content that isn't suitable for, for kids. Um, so the, this, the solution to this has to lie at the layer below the services that sit on top of the internet. It has to be implemented in the layer that actually runs the internet, the network. The ISPs, Nominet, ICANN, the Internet Governance Mechanism, Internet's govern internet Governance Forum, um, and I'd like to know if the panel have got any opinion about measures that are being debated and discussed to change the way the network itself works and the way it's regulated globally. I think that's challenging, shall we say. <coughs> um, but we see some really interesting questions, thank you. We seem to have an education, a few education questions about when's the right moment, but also this hiding and dark spaces. And I'm really interested because we know young people I certainly was, you do sometimes want to hide and you want to take the risk and you want to go to the dark place. How do we deal with that? Over to the panel, who'd like to start? I'm going to pick on Mark and we'll come up this way. Well, I, do, I think we, you know, we, we keep saying young people and it's such a broad mm -hmm. uh, demographic that actually, you know, I, I agree, I can, I, can talk, I can hear the sort of children you're talking about, probably not, you wouldn't, we wouldn't call them children. We say they're teens and things. And I think that is the, we've got to get much better at that understanding that progression. I don't think most uh, primary school kids are really looking for dark spaces. They're looking for having great entertainment on the internet and being able to do what they see their mum and dad do when they can watch videos and things. Why can't I have a watch of videos? What, and they want it under the same terms. They don't want to have, be moderated every minute with someone looking over their shoulder. But they want to. They want to go to a place which where they can find that stuff. They can search in the same way we would search on demand, and um, and play games. And it is about making sure that the 
the sort of the back doors or the ways you trip over other stuff gets cleaned up. And I think that's where we can help. Um, I do think, you know, the ISPs, the ISPs, some ISPs are starting to do some interesting stuff around this. Um, but I think what you're, you're suggesting is a much bigger sort of, again, an industry-wide thing. The, the, I, and I was going to say, I don't know what we can do about it. But actually, you know, as the children's media industry, we have content that all these players want. The, the, the big vi video players want our content there. They're actually courting all the big broadcasters to get content. You know, um, the, it's not so much the social networks, but if they want our content, we can lobby and push back and say, yeah, we'll, you'll con we'll put our content there, but when you have made it a bit more secure and, and safe. Catherine wanted to come in, so Catherine. Just on the um, education point and the sort of BBC's, uh, a word about the BBC's approach to it in the BBC's media literacy uh, strategy, which is that it, it, it can't start too early. So we, I mean, although early, earlier we've been talking about walled gardens not being a good thing, but I think for the very youngest kids, for the CBBS kids, they are expected and they are the right things. But we're, we're starting to get those messages out to children then about being, you know, positive responsible users of the internet and teaching them resilience and and going through cbbc um up to the older age groups hopefully teaching them re uh, resilience and critical thinking and and then preparing them for the stage where they're going to leave us and they're going to go out to the wider internet and they're going to go to facebook before they leave us but are much better able to cope with what they might find when they get there great thanks simon wanted to come in as well yeah, um, I've been inspired over recent weeks, as, you, as you've heard, by people talking about how they're using Facebook, in, in particular by teachers who are talking about how they've managed to persuade the school principal to allow Facebook to be used in, in school and how they've used it for learning. Uh, and it, it's very inspiring. And, and I think one of the problems we, we've, we have had in the UK and continue to have in many schools is because Facebook and other social media is blocked, then actually it's much, much harder for teachers to have a meaningful conversation with pupils when, they're kept, when there's pupils who are experiencing problems on social media. Because it's a world that teachers are told not to be in, and certainly not to be in with children. Uh, I think that's a real problem. Um, just on this issue about teaching, we are... Has anybody here heard of MediaSmart? Okay, so MediaSmart is uh, something that's run, effectively funded by the advertising industry. It's an initiative in primary schools to help kids understand what, what advertising is all about. We are part of an active discussion uh, with other platforms and with the Advertising Association to, to refresh that, uh, to make it something which is actually includes content about advertising on platforms where, where children are, including Facebook, and to bring it into secondary schools. Uh, I'm very hopeful we'll have something to announce about that formally in the next few months. And I think that could be a great way of helping young people understand how, how media works, in, including how it's funded, how we use data, how, how they can control that experience as well. I've got Rebecca then, Claire. Um, just to answer the question about social media being taught, yes, I agree with that, and I think that should happen every place. And I think ethics, which is part of that, and maybe the impetus behind your question, but I don't know that for sure, um, should be taught as well in schools and in the home. But people, we have to remember that people freaked out when the printing press came out and, and books came out, and women shouldn't learn how to read, women shouldn't be educated. You know, it was, it's been, this has been going on since 
you know, Moses parted the Red Sea or whatever. So that people just freak out when something new comes and says, you know, oh my God, now what? Now what are we going to do? There's nothing new. There's no line. Even in the 90s, when I was at AOL, I never saw a line between the online and the offline world, and people kept saying, and in real life, we blah, blah, blah. And I thought, What's, how is this any different from real life? So I think that we have a responsibility to teach children ethics. And I think as businesses, we need to be ethical, um, and they emulate our behavior, the moderator's behavior, the, the site's behavior, the content behavior, et cetera. But I don't think that it's that saying you can't do any of these 52 things that everybody in the world is doing because one person had a problem is the answer to it. So legislation to me is way off. That's a whole different discussion, but anyway. Claire. Um, so I just want to pick on the, um, no, the point from the lady that kids are not always aware of what they're doing and that they sometimes go to the dark spaces. And there's, you know, there's very good reasons for that in terms of the development of the brain. The teenage brain is not fully developed, and the bit of it that's not developed until they're much older is the bit which controls their ability to understand long-term consequences and risk. So that's why young people are hardwired mm. to take risks. So we've got to recognise that. And I think building in education would really help. So um, e-safety is being introduced into the curriculum from September, the computing curriculum from key stage one right through. Uh, we'd like to see it, you know, in, in not, not in the computing curriculum, but embedded throughout the whole curriculum and in personal social health education curriculum. I think the idea of having a social media uh, specific kind of tools to educate young people is a really nice one. I think it would have to be principles-based because otherwise it goes out of date so quickly. Um, I will take that as well as an, ac an action, actually, because I'm a former secondary school teacher, so maybe I can get some of the social media platforms mm. and we can all work together to, to create that tool, potentially work with the National Association of Teachers of English, all that sort of thing. Um, it's lots of nodding so heads I think there's, Yeah, okay, I've got, I've got buy-in for that. <laughs> <laughs> Shake. Um, so I think, I think, you know, all that is good. Uh, in terms of the, the university lecturer who talked about um, the naivety of her students, I think that is really true. And I think we need to recognise that um, young people do need more, more help and that their parents need more help. So although 80% of parents are doing something, quite often that will be a conversation, um, which, you know, we don't know the quality of that conversation. It could be very much led by the young person, you know, and often parents are looking to their children to educate them. And we should harness children as experts, really, in this mm. space and, and yep. use that as a strength um, because we know that parents do lack confidence because of the speed of change because of the technology and you know the overwhelming number of them want more information about how to navigate it um, and just finally on the gentleman's point about you know the dark spaces and the, the layer the network layer I think that what that can do is help to mediate co the content it will never help to um, you know, t tackle the, the conduct and how, how that's influencing behaviour. But I, I think, you know, even before we do that, what we could do is simply enforce the laws and terms and conditions that are there. So pornography, you know, and the pornography which is available online, we're not talking soft-focused Swedish saunas here. We're talking really hardcore, explicit stuff. You know, why don't we just put that behind an 18 barrier? It's very easy to do that. that, that age, verifying someone's age of 18 is really simple to do. It might cost a bit of money, but, you know, fine. I know that won't solve everything. There's self-generated content and all that sort of thing, but it would be a start. Thanks. Dave? Yeah, I'm always 
slightly suspicious on the education idea and the discussion in schools, partly because I always think I'm not sure if most young people and teenagers that I know need any more encouragement from society to talk about themselves and social media itself. They're actually quite, often quite savvy and quite obsessed with it. I like the idea of them teaching ethics in schools, but of course I don't necessarily think it needs to stop at the ethics of social media. I think ethics is something generally that hopefully education will be teaching people. Actually, these, some of these questions that are coming up now are not necessarily new to the technology. And my, my greater concern is that often, every single time we meet these new technological problems, our, our solutions and our, our regulation, our panic towards them can end up being, end up being less. So you know, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, the panic was you know, TV, the idiot box, the latchkey kids, those who were abandoned. You know, particularly in the US and here, we became more structured. We, let, you know, we gave particularly, and Dana Boyd's book is quite good on this, in the way in which kids have now got more and more extracurricular activities. Their days are structured. They spend less time outside of school and adult oversight, and less time developing a, a kind of more independent worldview. You know, our panic over stranger danger did mean that we ended up ceding a lot of ground. We actually took part in that process of shoving the kids out of the parks and the malls. We pushed them into safe spaces and then didn't quite maintain those safe spaces. So I think first of all, foremost, our approach to these questions actually is to not get fixated on technology about what is the appropriate way of doing things. I think the, one of the things that scares me most is the way in which we prosecute young people for bullying or for the use of hate speech um, or for you know, making off you know, offensive comments on social media. And that's something that worries me. But it worries me more because that's our reaction as a society to the, towards these things, that we reach for the, for the law book first and then for the moral and ethical debate second. Really interesting. Claire's shaking her head. I do want to come back to that, Claire. I just want to get in. So if you could just hold that and come back to it at the end, Claire. Hi, I'm Carol Hart-Fletcher from Kids OK Online. Um, I think the big missing thing that we have here is talking about teachers. You can't have education in schools without teachers. And as much as teachers would love to be addressing the issues that we're faced with, most teachers, a lot of teachers, are very scared of using um, social media because they're so exposed. And we've seen so many cases of teachers being um, harassed online that it's no wonder, really, that they avoid it. Uh, and on the other hand, you have teachers who do take it responsibly and see it as something they have to address. Um, but teachers have many other things to do as well. They have a very crowded curriculum, and they're being asked to do yet another thing, and it's very difficult. The issue then that, sorry, and the, the other the issue that the teachers have is they're, they're having parents, like the NSPCC, they're having parents going in and talking to them, teachers uh, putting their hands up and saying, we don't know what to do, we're really sorry, uh, which is something we're addressing in our local area in Devon. Um, yes, social media should be taught in schools. I think there's no doubt that that is being addressed by government and it's part of everybody's working life now, isn't it? And we do run a social network for kids in schools, which is called Super Clubs Plus. Thank you very much. Superclubplus.co.org.com. Hi. I, I really appreciate so many of the points that have been made and, and, and the thoughtful conversation. I, I come to this as a media professional, as an educator, and as a parent. And so I just want to add a piece to the parent discussion, because so many times in conversations about media, what I hear people say is, and the parents should do, and the parents should do. And out of 24 hours in a day, my child is in school a major chunk of that time. They're with friends. They're in some after-school activity. They're doing homework. 
at my house, maybe, maybe somewhere else, maybe a library somewhere else, and they're asleep. And the amount of time that I, as a parent, really have to say, here are the rules for media in our home, are limited. It will not happen if we put everything on parents. It requires everyone. Uh, it's on a similar theme. I'm also, it's quite interesting that the conversation started off with a lot about tools and online safety and protecting children online. And when it came to the questions, the shift, it, there seems to be a shift to skills and how to empower young people because the technology will continue to change. Nothing is surer. And young people, in particular, are the ones who will explore content and explore services and use them in, the, in ways that they weren't initially designed. So really, it, in terms of, I, I don't want to use the word education, but in terms of critical awareness and, and knowledge and understanding, I think there's a difference between roles and responsibilities. And some organizations like the BBC will have a responsibility in an area, but I think other organizations have a role to play. And in terms of parents as well, Simon's right, 85% of parents are doing something to help their, their moderate their, their child's online experience. But half of parents also think that their child knows more about the internet than they do. So the question to the panel is, what, not responsibility, but what roles could industry play in helping to, for, to develop skills for everybody, parents as well as children? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jaffet uh, Asher, and I actually uh, work with Catherine as the editorial lead for what we've been doing for CBBC and CBBC on YouTube. Um, and to something Mark said about putting pressure on YouTube, I have to say that um, we have really worked quite hard to make sure that YouTube understand exactly why we're there, what our concerns are, um, and they have done their best, I think, in the period that we've been there to try to adjust the way that results have shown up around our content. They'll continue to do that. And frankly, if we're not happy with the way it goes, I think we'll withdraw what we're doing there. So we'll keep working with them and put pressure on them to do that. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else who hasn't spoken? Okay. Thank you very much for some really interesting questions. I'm really sorry, panel, you've got about 30 seconds to answer all of that stuff. Claire, I'm going to come to you first because I did cut you off. So you can pick up anything from the panel or the floor that you, you'd like to. We are short for time. Yeah, and final up, thoughts, really. I'll just pick up Dave's point about the prosecution of young people. I don't think there's any evidence that young people are being prosecuted in large numbers for what they're doing online. In fact, the opposite, you know, the police are. Police I've spent time with say we're overwhelmed with queries from parents about sexting. And to be honest, you know, we don't want to prosecute young people for this because it's not neither in the best interest of the child who's the, the, the victim or the child who's done it. And I think there's, there's no evidence that we're, we're taking a, a too much of a hard line approach to this. Any other, anything else you want to pick up on? Claire? I think it's brilliant that more than 50% of parents, their, their kids know more than them about the internet. That means that the UK's future as one of the leading internet economies of the world should be secure. Final thought, was that your final thoughts on? Yeah. Great. Um, Catherine? Um, in, in, in response to the uh, point about teachers, I've, I've, I've been at conferences and heard teachers stand up and say that they're, dealing, they're absolutely overwhelmed by the issues that their young students are um, experiencing and that they feel that they don't get anything like the additional support that they now need from government in order to, to deal with it. Thank you very much. Rebecca? I think we should celebrate and be 
happy about the 98 plus percentage of things and people on the internet and things of the internet that are world changing and positive and great and spend less time worrying about the 1% or 2% that are problematic. Okay, Dave, you're nodding your head. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's to echo actually what Simon was saying um, at the start, which is just a reminder that you know the problems of the internet are reflecting general problems within society and issues of how we deal with it. Yes, it kind of throws up some specifics of it. Um, certainly, okay, young people aren't necessarily being prosecuted, but the police are being brought in to, to resolve some of these situations where historically they would not have even have been considered to be uh, within their purview. That can sometimes be the danger of extending the definitions of what we mean by bullying. It's never quite clear what what any of these kind of terms can mean when we talk about uh, sexing or bullying. You know, who are the people who have been damaged by it? Who are the people who are doing it? These are quite difficult, broad ranges of human behaviour that have been talked about. So I think really we just need to have more open discussions in public about you know, what some of these issues are. I think rather than necessarily looking towards what the quick fix solution can be, realise that it's, it's an ongoing dialogue and it will always have to be that. Thank you. Mark, very quick final thought. Okay, so society is what we make it. That's content creators. We make the stuff that kids want. So let's make sure we put pressure on the people who distribute the stuff to be a bit more transparent, tell us their algorithms, tell us their policies, as Claire was saying. Just even tell us what their age ratings are and stick to it. Thank you very much. Could we thank our panel for a very, very interesting discussion?